Well, any kids here? Uh, kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to children's church. And while our children are heading off to children's church, would the rest of you open up your Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 19? Luke chapter 19. If you're using a pew Bible and you're unfamiliar with Luke, you'll find that on page 1039. Luke chapter 19. And uh, it's on page 1039. Today we're studying a great story. I love this story. It's the story of Zacchaeus. I was tempted to lead us in a chorus of Zacchaeus was a wee little man, but you know, I figured maybe not. Uh, Make sure you come to church next Sunday, by the way. We have a a guest speaker coming who's just phenomenal. I mean, I, I don't even know why he's coming here, but for some reason he is. Uh, maybe he's confused us with another congregation. But anyway, he's, uh, his name's uh, Dr. Peter Kuzmik. He's, uh, not, he's not only the professor, professor of world missions up at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, but this guy is like one of the key leaders of Christianity in Eastern Europe. He's been uh, instrumental in strengthening the church in Serbia, uh, Kosovo, Croatia. I mean, this guy is, is doing amazing things for God over there. Like I said, I'm not really sure why he's eager to come here, but I'm thankful that he is. And so... Uh, he's going to be here next. So it's a great Sunday to come next Sunday. I hope you bring invite a friend. It's kind of interesting that God's in God's timing that he's coming and then we have our missions conference coming up. So it's kind of like the, the pre-missions conference priming of the pump. So anyway, I'm excited that Dr. Kuzmik is coming next Sunday. Anyway, today we're studying Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus. And let me just read the text and then we'll dig into it. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back Four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. When I was in high school, uh, I spent a couple of years working on the yearbook, putting our yearbook together and you know, every year they do this thing in high school where they vote <clears throat> on who's the most this and the most that. You know this thing? Like, you know, who's the most athletic? And they vote for two seniors, you know, one guy and one gal are the most athletic. And they, we put them in the yearbook. And, you know, there's the most well-dressed and, uh, you know, the most popular. And, of course, you have to have most likely to succeed, right? Uh, I never really won any of those awards, actually. I was... I was more like most likely to be 
you know, put in a trash can by the wrestling team or something, you know, that would have been me. I, I was a real dweeb in high school. Unfortunately, I've outgrown that. But um, when, when I was looking at this story and thinking of Zacchaeus, here's this guy living in Jericho named Zacchaeus. And if, if the people of Zacchaeus were to take a vote and to assign him some title, I suspect he would be a likely candidate for the title, not most, but least likely to be saved. Least likely to be saved. If the people of Jericho were to get together and say, you know, what guy in this town is the last one who would ever turn to God? Who is the last person around us who would ever uh, turn his life around and follow God? At the bottom of the list, you would have to put Zacchaeus. Somewhere down at the bottom of the queue, somewhere there. Uh, Zacchaeus had chosen, as we'll see, he chose a life path that was diametrically opposed to the values of God's people and the values of God's kingdom. Uh, And, you know, he's one of these guys who had God and God's law and God's people in his rearview mirror, and they were behind him, and he was going the opposite direction with his whole life. And so the people of Jericho knew him, and they held him in contempt. Uh, Nobody really liked this guy in any way. He was least likely to be saved And then something happened. His life actually changed. Something happened to him. And what happened to him was, it's pretty simple, he met Jesus. And that changed everything. So let's look at the story. Verse 1. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. So now just to orient you historically and geographically, you know, if you can think of, you know, the uh, the Mediterranean Sea kind of over here, and then here's Jerusalem, and over here is the, Jordan River coming down to the Dead Sea. Jericho was, was sort of, uh, you know, this direction from Jerusalem, and it was right in the Jordan Valley. Uh, it was on a major crossroad, so it was on the east-west crossroad to Jerusalem. It was also on the north-south crossroad. If you were coming down from Galilee in the north to go to Jerusalem, you'd come down, hit Jericho, and then you'd, you know, take a turn and go over to Jerusalem. So it was a major crossroad, a great place to do taxation. Because lots of people would be bringing goods and services through there. It was a major sort of financial hub where lots of, uh, there was a lot of interchange, a lot of uh, excitement going on. But not only that, archaeologists and historians have uh, found out that at the time of Christ, Jericho was also a significant uh, resort spot. It was a vacation spot for the rich and the famous. Uh, there were springs there. There were palm trees. Uh, we know that the Hasmonean kings, the archaeologists have uncovered this. They've dug it up. They found this huge three-acre palace that the different kings would come to on vacation there because it was warmer in Jericho in the winter than other places in Palestine. So they would all go there. And archaeologists have uncovered this, you know, swimming pool that's like as big as this sanctuary. It was huge. And they found marbled courtyards and colonnades and gardens. I mean, a very extravagant place. So, you know, when you think Jericho, you've got to think like, I don't know, Palm Springs or the Hamptons. Or, uh, you know, Jupiter down in Florida. You, you know, someplace like that where the elite went to relax and to vacation and to winter. And so here's Jesus. He's going through this place and he meets this man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was the least likely to be saved. Nobody liked this guy. And you can tell because look what his job is in verse 2. He's a chief tax collector. Now, for those of you who've been studying Luke with us, you're familiar with the whole tax collector thing. Uh, If you haven't been, let me just do a a really quick summary. 
uh, the summary is everybody hated tax collectors. And not just because they didn't like paying taxes, but primarily because uh, tax collectors in those days were notorious for ripping people off. They made money by abusing their power. They would just bilk people and go far above the commission they were expected to earn, but they really uh, abused their power to line their own pockets. They became wealthy. But, you know, you couldn't do anything about it because the power of the Roman government stood behind the tax collector. So you can't argue with the tax collector. You can't win that debate. He, you know, he's the tax collector, and Rome's, you know, the Roman soldiers are standing right there, so you just kind of pay whatever he says that you need to pay. Um, so uh, it's kind of like the mob. That's how I think of the tax collectors. Whenever I read about them, they're like the mob. They take your money. They take your things. You can't do anything about it. You can't fight back because then they'd squash you. And so, you know, I think of all these gangster, mobster movies, and that's them. They're sort of like a legalized mob, these uh, tax collectors. And that's why everybody hated them uh, across the board. You look at uh, Greek and Roman literature from the time of Christ, and when they talk about tax collectors, they're lumped together in the same category as thieves, robbers, and brothel keepers. That's what the Romans said about them. The Jews didn't say anything different. They said they're like, you know, tax collectors are like prostitutes and sinners. They're just these bad people. Uh, The rabbis not only said you're supposed to hate tax collectors, but you're supposed to hate their families. That's how... Uh, vile they were in the eyes of the people. There's one rabbi uh, even who said that it is morally acceptable to lie to a tax collector. <laughs> you believe that? You know, don't lie. The Ten Commandments say don't lie. Unless it's a tax collector, then it's okay. Because we all know they deserve that. Uh, you know, I'm just trying to give you a sense of how hated these people are. But not just, look, he's not just a tax collector. Verse 2. He's a chief tax collector. So, even worse, this guy's up the food or down the food chain, however the food chain works. Uh, you, you know, the way the taxation system worked back then was if you were a wealthy person, you would buy a tax contract from the Roman government. And so you were now obligated to provide a certain amount of money in taxes back to the government. But so to fulfill that contract, you would then hire tax collectors who might even hire tax collectors under them. So there was this kind of you know, food chain, this bureaucracy. And then as these guys down here made their quotas and lined their pockets, they had to send their money up to these guys who, of course, had to take their cut, and then they sent it up. So it was like a pyramid, you know, and it all went up to the top, and then that guy was really, really rich. And so it was just a way of, of uh, kind of like organized crime, you know. These, so Zacchaeus here is, he's up there somewhere. I don't know if he's the guy who bought the contract from the Roman government or if he was simply high in the bureaucracy of it. But whatever the case you know, the guy's making money. He's not out there taking taxes. He's like in his office sending out other people to make money and he's, you know, getting the money from it and passing on his piece. So it's just a whole dirty thing. And so you can see why people would hate this guy because of the position that he was in. And as a result of this, look at verse 2, he was wealthy. Yeah, he's wealthy. I don't know, when I think Zacchaeus, this is the picture I have in my mind. I, this isn't really from Scripture. This is just kind of my... Uh, out-of-control imagination. I just think of this guy with like a silk shirt, kind of unbuttoned, and he's got gold chains, you know. And I, I don't know, every time I was studying this passage, I kept thinking, you know who should play this role? Joe Pesci. Uh, or, or maybe Danny DeVito, you know. If I was to film this, one of those guys, kind of like that, that you know, fast-talking mobster sort of thing, like, how you doing, how you doing? Like, fine, Mr. Zacchaeus, please don't tax me, you know. One of these sort of guys... And, and he's got a four-camel garage, and he's got, you know, the fake bake and the whole thing. He's just this kind of, that's how I picture this guy. 
And, and people don't like him. Look at verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. You see, you wonder there, is, is the text saying that he simply couldn't see over the crowd? Or is it also that the crowd has in some way intentionally become an obstacle to him seeing Jesus? Well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's implied, but even if it isn't, verse 7 is explicit. Look at verse 7. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. But you remember, as we read, Jesus is going to ask to come to Zacchaeus' house. And look how the crowd is going to respond in verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner? <clears throat> you know, in those days when you ate with somebody, it was entering into a relationship with them. It wasn't simply, you know, we had, we had a meal, but to eat with somebody was to bond with him. It was a kinship-building activity. So here's Jesus eating with this guy, and it's like, Jesus, you don't eat with him. Look, we don't eat with him. Our kids don't play with his kids. We just don't deal with him. Jesus, by eating with him, I mean, what are you going to do? Kids are looking up to you, Jesus. You're a role model. And look who you're hanging out with. You can't be with that guy. He's bad. Do you know what he does? He's a chief tax collector. You know, that kind of thing. And yet Jesus eats with him. So this guy, oh, I mean, he is least likely to be saved if there ever was one. This guy's whole life was built upon lining his own pockets at the expense of hardworking peasants. Just, what, what, a, what a criminal, what a low life this guy is. Least likely to be saved. Who in your life would you identify as least likely to be saved? If you had to go home this afternoon and find a photograph and put it up on your fridge and say, this is the person I know who's the last guy or the last gal who would ever, ever come to God. This is the last person and put him up on your fridge. Who would that be? Maybe it would be, I don't know, you know, someone from work who you just cannot stand. In fact, you're looking for another job because of this person. Um, maybe it would be uh, your neighbor who's you know, always blasting rock music and having wild parties, and you're like, ay, ay, ay. Maybe someone in your family, you know. Mom, what's my picture doing on the fridge? Nothing, you know, whatever. <laughs> who is that person? Can you think of that person? Maybe you're like, yeah. I put my own picture on the fridge. <laughs> That's me. I'm least likely to be saved. You're just amazed you're even here in church this morning. Like, I can't believe they got me to come here. I can't believe the roof didn't fall in on me. Um, you look at your life and you say, I have done things here that people probably haven't even heard of. I have so much guilt. I have so many, so many issues. I have so much baggage. It's all so complex. It's just amazing that I'm even here in church. I don't even know why I'm here. Maybe that's where you're at. You're like, I'm the least likely to be saved. And you would put your own uh, photograph up there. I met a guy like that once, actually. I was, um, when I was in seminary I, uh, up on the North Shore, I did a summer where I was a chaplain in Beverly Hospital. And one of the areas that they gave me to sort of supervise was the cardiac care unit, which is basically ICU for cardiac patients. And I remember, you know, I was making my rounds one day, and I, I met this guy, and he was... Uh, really nice guy, really soft-spoken, and I found out he was a Vietnam veteran. And so I'm talking to him, and he was really encouraging to me. He's like, oh, I'm really excited for what you're doing. You know, this is good, and you, you should keep following this path. I'm glad you're doing this with your life, and, you know, that kind of thing. And, 
And, and I said, well, you know, you can, you can know God too. And, and, you know, sort of turning the corner like that, trying to, you know, my subtle sort of blundering way, well, what about you? And he says, oh, no, no, no. He says, I, and he didn't go into details, but he says, basically, I've seen things and I've done things that I can't describe to you. And because of that, I could never, I could never believe. I could never follow this path. Uh, he'd sort of written himself off as least likely to be saved. It's impossible. Maybe for some people, but not for me. And so that's where Zacchaeus is. And yet, in spite of that, isn't it interesting that he still wants to see Jesus? Isn't that curious? Verse 3, he wants to see what Jesus looks like. They didn't have TV back then, so he didn't have photographs. What's he look like? Who is he? Verse 4, he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Uh, Now, that would have been very humiliating in that culture for somebody with that much money and power to go climbing a tree. And that's what little kids did. You know, guys like him didn't go climbing up in trees. But apparently he wanted to see Jesus enough that he was willing to have people think he was strange. And maybe that's where you're at too. Maybe you're like, yeah, I'm least likely to be saved. But for some reason, you're here. Like, what's that all about? Maybe it's like Zacchaeus. He, you know, he's this bad tax collector, but there's a part of him that's curious about who Jesus is. Who is this rabbi who hangs out with tax collectors? I've got to see this guy. And maybe you're here, and, and maybe if people knew you were here, some of your other friends, they'd be like, what are you doing there? But, but you're here because there's a part of you that wants to get up in that tree and just take a look and see what it's all about. And so he climbs up in the sycamore fig tree. And we come to verse 5. Verse 5 has to be my favorite verse in this whole story. I love this moment. It's such an incredible moment. When Jesus reached the spot, He looked up and said, To him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Can you just visualize the crowd of people? Everyone's pushing and bustling and and Jesus stops and everyone's wondering, what's he doing? And he singles out this one man. Zacchaeus doesn't know who Jesus is. Doesn't even recognize him. He's never seen him before. But Jesus knows who Zacchaeus is. And out of the perhaps tens of thousands of people who lived in Jericho at that time, Jesus knew who Zacchaeus was. And out of all that crowd that's pushing and bustling and they want to see Jesus and they want to touch Jesus, He stops and He looks at one man and He says, Hey, you, you are the one that I want to be with today for lunch. And notice He didn't say want, right? He didn't say, I want to eat with you. What does He say? Look at verse 5. I must stay at your house today. That's a good translation. Because there's a Greek word there that carries the sense of necessity and obligation. And in the Gospel of Luke, when this word is used, it often has the sense of um, must, as in God's plan must be fulfilled. Like Jesus will use this word. He'll say, I must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die. So it's a very theologically weighted word. So when Jesus says, I must go to your house, it's not just like, boy, I'm really hungry and I heard you're rich and have a good spread. It's, it's more like, Zacchaeus, do you understand that I'm here looking for you specifically? That God knows who you are and God is looking for you. And therefore, in fulfillment of what God is telling me to do as His servant, I must stay at your house. Is it possible that God knows who you are? 
and that God is saying, I must dine with you? Is that possible? Or are you like, oh, no, not me. Is it possible that, you know, we talk about people finding God and finding religion. What if nobody has ever found God? What if God is the one who finds us? What if we're just like Zacchaeus, we're climbing our trees and doing our thing and maybe we're a little curious, but it's God who's searching for us and it's God who finds us. And yeah, we respond to Him, but it's God who takes the initiative to find you. What if God's looking for you right now? Maybe that's why you're here and you don't even know it. Kind of like Zacchaeus, sort of unwittingly stumbling into it and you don't realize that all around you, God is working out a plan to bring you to Himself. What if? There really is a God and He really does know you and He really is looking for you. And you're just kind of like me. It's just sort of stumbling along. I, I remember the first time I, uh, I really sensed that God was looking for me. I was, I was maybe like, I've told this story a couple of times to you, but um, I was like 12 or 13 and my mom had been taking us to church and it was great. I really enjoyed it. I didn't dislike church. They studied the Bible in Sunday school and the pastor preached these sermons. I was learning a lot. It was very interesting. I'd never really been taught the Bible. So I was fascinated with all the different stories and was just kind of absorbing it. And, you know, that's great. But then something happened and I didn't hear a voice and I didn't have a vision. I didn't have a dream and I didn't see a light and no angel appeared to me and I didn't speak in tongues and I didn't fall over and shake. You know, nothing like that. I was just... As I studied the Bible in Sunday school... And as the preacher preached, and as I read the Bible on my own, it was as if, you know, it was a tug on my heart, as if God was saying, and I didn't hear a voice or hear words, but it was like God was saying, I want you, Jeremy, to follow Christ. Not just to know about Him, or to say, yeah, I go to church and I understand church. Not just to have sort of a familiarity with religion, but for you to follow Jesus and to give your life to Him. And and that began about a six-month process um, where I, I describe it as for about the next six months, I was in a steel cage match with God. And we were fighting because I didn't want to follow God. I mean, you know, it is, you don't have to be a tax collector to be a sinner. We're all sinners. And the thing about sinners is sinners hate being told what to do. Sinners hate anybody telling them how to live their life. And you don't have to be, <laughs> you know, in a, in a biker gang to you know, not want to follow God. You can just be a regular 12-year-old. But I didn't want God telling me what to do. So it was about you know, six months of that, and finally I lost. Um, God apparently is undefeated in steel cage matches, from what I can tell. And so I, I you know, thank God I lost. And, and God won and finally won me over to himself. Zacchaeus didn't take that long. He was ready. God must have already been doing something in his heart. Maybe that's why he was so eager to climb the tree. Maybe God had been secretly working in this yucky, vile tax collector. But whatever reason, verse 6, Jesus says, come down. He came down at once and welcomed him gladly. The Greek word is rejoicing. He was rejoicing. You know, he's like this. Yay, Jesus is coming to my house. Come on, come on, come on. Come on. He's so excited to receive Christ into his, his life. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay him back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too 
as a son of Abraham. I mean, wow, half his wealth? And then he says, anyone I cheated, I'll pay him back four times? I mean, who knows? Maybe that's why he only gave half, because he knew he needed some extra money to pay back all the people he cheated. I don't know. Just my, con- my total conjecture, but that's amazing. So what happened there? The, the real important thing is what's happening with Zacchaeus? Why is he giving away this money? Is he buying his salvation? Is he purchasing an indulgence, so to speak? And, you know, he's done all these bad things, and now he's going to offset it with one whopper of a good deed. And that one big good deed will outweigh all the things he's done up to that point. Is that what's going on here? Is Zacchaeus kind of, uh, is it a trade-off? I did this, but now I'll buy my way out of it. Um, I don't think so, because I, I think what's really taking place here is simply that Zacchaeus has been changed by the love of God. That the fact that God would come to him, that the Messiah would come to him and say, I want to be with you, has changed him. That's how people become Christians. It's because they, they come face to face with the love of Christ. And the fact that Christ would die for me and wants me to follow him and his love is what changes us. His law brings us to see our need to be saved. And we're like, wow, I'm really you know, a lawbreaker. I deserve God's judgment. And then instead of judgment, we find his forgiveness. And it just melts your heart. And so that's how people become Christians. You know, there's this common misconception that Christianity is about, okay, I'm going to straighten up. I'm going to stop doing A, B, and C. I'm going to start doing X, Y, and Z. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to do this. I'm going to fix myself. Mm. Christianity is not self-help. Christianity is God-help. It's about God helping me to do what I cannot do for myself, which is change myself or save myself. And, and so it's, it's grace. It's relying on the grace of God to save us and change us. So I think what's happened is his heart has been changed. And because he has a new heart, his actions follow Immediately. Because if you're a different person, you're going to start acting differently. That's what happens. He's instantly a different person. And now he looks at money not as a way of abusing people and lining his own pockets, but his heart is now in harmony with the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is a concern for the poor and a concern for righteousness and a concern to, to use your resources to advance the glory of God. That's what the kingdom of God is about. You know, that, that's why we give to missions. That's why we're doing these faith promise things. It's because we want God's glory to shine around the world. And that's why we send out missionaries. It's not so we go, oh, look at all the money we raise for missions. It's, it's because we love Jesus. He's changed our hearts and that affects my relationships, my time, and my money. It affects everything. And so here's this man who's been transformed by the love of Christ. And so Jesus sums it all up in verse 10. In case we kind of got lost. Verse 10 is like the summary point. This is the point of the whole passage. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That's why Jesus came. Was to look for lost people like me and like you and like Zacchaeus. You know, who's least likely to be saved? The answer is actually all of us are least likely to be saved. None of us is a candidate for God's love. But because of who God is, because Jesus is a merciful Savior, He came searching for all of us who are least likely. And He came to rescue us. And so I think that's important for us as Christians. There's a critical lesson here that we have to keep faith. We have to keep praying. We have to keep reaching out. We cannot write people off. We have to be careful as Christians not to fall into a self-righteous us-versus-them mentality. Like, you know, oh, we're these people over here who have it right. 
and who are lives don't do those things and those people do those yucky things and aren't they bad and aren't we good? No, 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 no. We are saved by the grace of God. And so we need to find that the people in our lives who perhaps most irritate us and turn us off are the, precisely the ones that God has brought into our lives so that we might pray for them. Maybe that's what you need to do in response to this text is like go home and actually put a picture up on your fridge. Every time you know you go down for a midnight snack, you look at the fridge, you're like, oh yeah, maybe I should pray for this person since I'm up anyway. And just ask God to, to work. Say, God, do a miracle. God, blow me away with what you could do in this person's life. And for the rest of us, it's just an, a reminder that God can do anything that God can change you, that there's nobody here who is too far from God. There's nobody here who has fallen so far short that God cannot find you and save you and change your life. God can save anybody. Every, uh, every other Monday, I meet with a group of pastors to pray. It's, it's a great group of guys. We hang out, we pray, and encourage each other and you know, share stories and learn from each other. Anyway, there's this one guy who comes. Uh, many of you know him in the church. His name is Danny Kroos. He's the chaplain uh, down at Plymouth, Plymouth County Correctional Facility, the big jail down in Plymouth. He's the chaplain there. Great guy. And if you were to meet Danny and you never known him before, you'd be like, oh, he's one of these holy roller Jesus kind of guys because, you know, he carries his Bible around. He's got a big, big Bible. And, he, you know, he's always like talking about the Lord and talking about his faith. And he's just really out there with it, you know, kind of like one of those really kind of crazy Christians who's just really into Jesus and it's like, whoo, what's going on with him? And, and you'd think he'd been a holy roller his whole life and was a Bible-thumping kind of person. But, you know, when you really get to know him, you realize he's a very loving, gentle man who's been changed by the grace of God. And, and if some of you know Danny's story. If you haven't, let me just share it with you really in, in thumbnail form. I, I love hearing Danny's story. It's like, Danny, tell me your story again. I've heard it 20 times, but so I've just got to hear it again. I can never get enough of Danny's story. And basically, Danny grew up in Brockton. Uh, he was a really tough character. He worked the high steel. He um, you know, was a fighter, both in the ring and outside of the ring. He drank like a fish, uh, total alcoholic, just into that whole scene. And at a very young age, he became an alcoholic. And, well, anyway, one night he was driving home, I think, from a bar, and he was intoxicated. And he hit a police officer who was on duty and killed the police officer. And the guy died, and, and so Danny went to jail. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know, like, about you, but drunk driver who hits and kills a police officer, at least in my, like, hierarchy of good people, bad people, for me, that's low on the list. That's down there. I'm just being totally honest with you. I'm like, man, somebody did that to a cop, you know, one of Brockton's finest. Forget it. Throw away the key. So they, they threw him in jail. And it was in jail that for the first time in his life, he started reading the Bible. There's nothing else to do. And as, as he read the Bible and he read about Jesus, that in a sense, Jesus said, Danny, I want you to come eat with me. What do you mean? He's killed a police officer. This guy's reckless. It doesn't matter because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And even that sin, as heinous as it is, is forgivable through the blood of Christ. And so it was through that experience that Danny became a Christian. And he said, if this is who Jesus is, and if this is what Jesus did, I want this. And God changed his life. And now he's a chaplain, and you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know that he's a chaplain in the same prison where he came to meet Jesus. It's a really amazing story. We've got to have Danny back here to preach, don't we? I've got to get him back. He's, you'd love Danny. He's awesome. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so let us... 
receive His forgiveness if you haven't already. And if you have, let us be a people who extend the same grace to those around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love You. We thank You that You came seeking and saving us. We thank You as Your people that You called us by name. That You not only called us to our ears, but You spoke to our hearts. You called us effectually. And when You spoke our names, Lord, we were drawn irresistibly to Your salvation. And so, God, thank You that You knew us before the foundation of the world, that You elected us before time for salvation. Lord, I just pray for anyone here who doesn't know You, that You would speak to their hearts, that they would hear that strange thing that they can't quite describe, but it's Your Holy Spirit drawing them to Yourself. Lord, would You draw men and women to Yourself today? And would You cause people to just be like Zacchaeus and go for it and accept You in and welcome You and be saved and forgiven? Lord, change lives today, we pray. And may, I, may we be a church, Father, that extends that warm heart of Jesus to the world around us. Lord, protect us from self-righteousness as a congregation. Thank You that this really is. I know this is a church that loves people who don't know You. I know, God, there are many pictures on refrigerators, so to speak, in this church. And so, Lord, just keep us praying and reaching out. Help us to be a church that loves you and loves the world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to the communion table here, we come to celebrate Christ's death for us with this bread that symbolizes the body of Christ that was broken for us. And this cup that symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And as we take these elements, we are celebrating and proclaiming our faith in Christ as our Savior. Uh, it, it's just a beautiful ceremony that, that um, visualizes and represents what Christ did for us that, to seek and to save us. And so in a sense, Jesus invites us to His house to eat at His table as His people. And so this table is open. If, if you are here and you know Jesus as your Savior, this is the Lord's table and we invite you to share in it with us. Uh, if you're not there, if you're not a Christian or you're still searching or have questions, that's fine. Uh, we would just ask that as the elements are passed around, you not partake. Just because by taking these elements, what you're saying is, I trust in Christ. Uh, I